I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're sitting in an ancient Jewish synagogue located right off the beautiful Sea of Galilee. You've got the morning light radiating her bluish green hue. In its first century context, this building that you're sitting in, made of of rock and sand and stone, it's enormous. As you look around at the surroundings, you can't help but, but really kind of sit in awe at the ornate architecture, the intricate design. The craftsmanship of this building is incredible. In comparison to all the other structures there in Capernaum, it's obvious that such a building would have never been constructed by poor peasants, if not for a very powerful, wealthy Roman benefactor. Someone had to have had deep pockets to build this structure. That particular morning, the synagogue, it's filled to capacity. You find the temperature oddly comfortable with the morning breeze coming on, coming in off the cool lake through large windows, doors constructed to provide needed ventilation. You find the air to be crisp, refreshing, but there is an excitement in the room that's inescapable. You see, the audience, this massive audience that's gathered that morning has gathered for one reason, Jesus. This famous rabbi was going to be a guest and he was going to be speaking. After taking in the scene, your attention shifts to the crowd around you. Just off stage, right, you see Jesus' 12 closest followers congregating with the ruler of the synagogue. It's likely they're engaged in a measure of small talk. In the seats of honor surrounding the stage, you notice that there's a delegation of religious leaders who've recently arrived from Jerusalem. The elaborate robes, the hats, the tassels of these affluent, influential men are very distinct and create an unmistakable contrast to the common folk you find yourself rubbing shoulders with in the gallery. On that specific morning, the overwhelming multitude of those in attendance are local peasants from either Capernaum or from one of the towns that make up the Sea of Galilee. As you look around at the expanse of those piled into the pews, you can't help but but note how the majority of this audience They're poor, but beyond being poor, they're they're beaten down. Whether it's the high taxes or the economic unrest, the political angst, they all bear the physical signs of, of, of struggle. Life is hard. And yet you can also note that there is a particular fire burning in their eyes, an optimism. While the scowls of the religious leaders make it clear they're skeptical of Jesus, the larger vibe in the room was this combination of excitement mixed with anticipation. No doubt the lion's share of the audience that morning was convinced that Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, was their long-awaited Messiah. As you eavesdrop on the conversations taking place around you, it's clear most of the crowd have been following with Jesus over the last couple months. As you listen, you hear their firsthand accounts of some really incredible things. The miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 as one example. Aside from this, you realize that the day before, most of the pew sitters had actually tried to take Jesus by force and make him their king. Though you learn Jesus had stopped them and dispersed the crowd, many are discussing the events of that morning. Many had actually hustled around the sea to be in attendance. Universally, the people 
are consumed with this speculation. What in the world would they all witness that morning? I'm sure as you sitting there watch the countdown timer on the flat screens work its way down to zero, and subsequently the lights dim knowing that the service is about to start, you can feel the avidity of the crowd starting to intensify. People are desperate to know what Jesus was going to say. They're even more curious what he might do. Many hoped this would be the day that Jesus would finally spark a revolution against the occupiers. Still others had gathered optimistic that Jesus might perform another amazing miracle. The jitters of the crowd quickly still. The rumbles of banter cease as Jesus, the famous rabbi, emerges on stage and he makes his way to the pulpit Everyone in attendance for a myriad of varying reasons is on the edge of their seats as Jesus begins to speak. John 6 verse 26 gives us the scene. Jesus, he says, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Speaking of the event, the miracle feeding the 5,000. Do not labor for food which perishes, Jesus said, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, as you're listening, this thought that Jesus has just laid out, it's interrupted by some within the crowd that morning who cried out, Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Unfazed by the interruption, Jesus answered, he said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Again, the audience interjects. Well, what sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, and it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. With a glance of, of compassion. But with an obvious stalwart conviction in his voice, Jesus, he replied to the audience, He said, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, it's with this statement that the crowd around you instantly erupts. Almost kind of like a complete unison. They begin to say, Lord, give us this bread always. Lord, give us this bread always. It's a scene. Now, to your surprise, you notice that the reaction causes a measure of frustration to bubble up within Jesus. He's trying to get his audience to see beyond the physical. He's trying to get his audience to see the spiritual, a deeper spiritual lesson he's articulating. So Jesus said to them, he said, I am the bread of life. He he who comes to me shall never hunger, but he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's at this point you notice how the delegation of 
religious Jews, you know, the men with the tassels and the ornate robes, men that have been sent from Jerusalem to the Galilee, specifically to investigate this man, Jesus. They begin at this point to start to complain amongst themselves because, we're told, Jesus said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Furthermore, you can hear them ask one another, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, undeterred by the distraction, Jesus answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. I think Jesus probably pauses here for dramatic effect before continuing. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. You kind of get the, he's like hammering home a point, isn't he? If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, as you sit back in this synagogue, you can feel with this last bit of the sermon, the mood start to shift a little bit. Like in light of what Jesus has just said, we're told that the Jews begin to quarrel amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, no longer are they directing questions to Jesus, but the religious leaders now start directing their obvious concerns to the larger audience in the synagogue. Now, Jesus, knowing that these men were intentionally twisting his words, he takes command of the situation. Look at it. He says to them, most assuredly, I say to you. You know, he's trying to calm down the fears. So, you know, he's going to double up. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And I think at this point, Jesus probably leaves the pulpit, and takes a seat. I mean, really, mic drop. This sermon that we just kind of read through, it's known as the bread of life discourse. I'd encourage you to study it in more, more detail on your own. And, and we could really, and have in the past, we could take weeks discussing the significance and the nuances of all that Jesus is articulating to the crowd that morning. Our purposes, though, what I want to focus on isn't really the sermon, I want to focus on what immediately happens next, what follows the sermon, because the reaction of this crowd is a bit unexpected. Look at verse 60. John 6, verse 60. Therefore, as a result of what's just happened, many of his disciples, this is, this is a number too large to count in the moment, 
and of his disciples, this is the group larger than just the 12. There were a lot of disciples following after Jesus. We know of at least a minimum of 80, but a large number. When they heard this, what Jesus has just said, they said to themselves, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, in the Greek, their reaction, this phrase, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? It's a little murky in the way it's translated. It would be better translated as this is an offensive message. Who could possibly accept it? And note, it wasn't really the the substance of Jesus' sermon that was difficult to grasp for them intellectually. It was the substance of Jesus' sermon that was hard for them to accept. Why? Because it offended their sensibilities. They knew what Jesus was saying. That's not why they rejected it. It's what it implied. It's what the implications were. It offended them. Verse 61, so Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about it. So he said to them, does this offend you? I love, this gives me such insight into the personality of Jesus. Are you guys offended? (laughs) What then, if you should see the son of men ascend where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So Jesus then turns to the 12. He says, do you also want to go away? But Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, I want you to get back to the scene, the synagogue that morning. As Jesus has worked his way through the meat of the sermon, as he's answered the inquiries of the crowd, in addition to the cynicism of the religious leaders, the general feeling of of the crowd in the room, it has morphed without question. That initial exuberance has dissipated. I mean, what Jesus has said has, it has sucked all of the air right out of the room. It's hard to ignore as you're sitting there that that initial fire in the eyes of the masses, that fire of hope has all but gone out. The anticipation, the elation of the crowd has now been replaced with a disbelief kind of a despondency. Like it's evident that those who had gathered just, they can't believe what they're hearing. Not only is it obvious that Jesus is failing to live up to the billing, but his message, it's offensive. As you look around the room, you can't help but notice a very visceral, and in some ways, personal deflation of those who's gathered. It began with one or two initially that rose to their feet and left the synagogue in disgust. But it didn't take long for that trickle to form a stream. The group who've arrived to hail Jesus as their king, those who have come to follow him into battle, are now bailing one after another. While this is happening, you also look up to the front, and you can witness a a tempered but noticeable glee coming from the smirks of the religious leaders as they watch the masses leave the auditorium and they follow suit, they know Jesus has crossed the line. He's alienated the people without them even being forced to to act. As the stream of deserters swells into a river, your attention shifts to the 12. 
the 12. Sitting right there, stage right. I mean, the look on their faces to what was occurring, it said it all, didn't it? You know, from what we know of these men, there's no question that the departure of such a large group of disciples following Jesus' sermon, it would have been equally disheartening for them. A punch to the gut. Many of the folks that are leaving were their friends. Many were their family. Even they are dismayed at what Jesus has said. Keep in mind, even though they know that Jesus spoke the words of eternal life, as you know, Peter so eloquently confesses, knowing that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, like many in the mob, these men, the twelve, they were also hoping that Jesus would lead a revolution against Rome. In fact, they had personally forsaken all and to follow Jesus, hoping that they would get positions in this coming kingdom. You know, in their mind, if you're one of them, the dynamic of losing so many followers in one moment would have been counterintuitive if you're there to lead a revolution. I can see them thinking to themselves, way to go, Jesus. You intentionally offended the majority of what was to be our foot soldiers. They've bailed. You know, you could have just toned it down a little bit, keep the ball, the momentum running. Instead, you've killed it, Jesus. You've killed the momentum, and you've weakened our odds as a result. As I mentioned, the reaction of these men was so palpable that Jesus, he couldn't avoid the elephant in the room. The Apostle John records that as the crowd is filing out the door, Jesus turns to these men and he asks, do you also want to go away? You know, one of the restrictions to just having the text is that we don't know the emotions behind, the tone, the tenor. I, I happen to imagine that what Jesus says here was probably pretty emotional. Do you guys also, I mean, you guys are also going to go? Peter's initial reply before his larger statement of faith, it says it all, to this question, Peter, who's kind of acting as the spokesman for the rest, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Think, think about this. Peter, in his response, doesn't rebuff the fact that what Jesus has just said was deeply offensive. Nor does he do anything to conceal their obvious disappointment. Furthermore, Peter doesn't even deny the reality that departing might have actually been a temporary consideration. Instead, Peter's response, it indicated the reality that once the options had kind of been weighed in the moment, in light of everything they knew of Jesus, where else are we going to go? Like, we don't really have a whole lot of other options, Jesus, at this point. Yeah, we're disappointed. Frankly, we kind of understand and we sympathize why so many are leaving. What you said, Jesus, crossed the line. It was offensive. But because we know you're the Messiah and the Son of God and all that, we'll have to trust you that you have a plan. And who, are we else, who else are we going to follow? You speak the words of eternal life. As you look at the reaction of the crowd to this particular sermon, you have to ask, what was it that made this message so offensive that a group of disciples who had spent months following Jesus around Galilee, who had seen him perform incredible miracles, who had just the day before wanted to make Jesus their king even forcibly, now completely bail and forsake him? What was so offensive? To answer this, let me first point out that most of 
your decisions manifest from what I call a need fix results framework. Bear with me, this is important. A need drives you to a fix which fosters a result. If the result fails to effectively address the need, or or for that matter, creates a more pressing and larger need, a fix logically receives the blame and it's abandoned for a new pursuit. It's just the logical way that needs lead to fixes. You look for results, no results, different fix, same need. For example, if your fundamental need is money and a new job is seen as the fix, but after you get said new job and the result isn't more money or worse still, you actually have less money and less time with family, you'll eventually what? You'll quit the job and you'll seek a new fix for the need. Unless, of course, money's more important than the well-being of your family, and then you, you plow forward. If your need, let's say, is, is being needed. I mean, right now, that's your big need, to be needed. And a girlfriend becomes seen as the logical fix. But after a few months into the relationship, you don't feel needed like you thought, or maybe she's becoming drama, creating bigger needs. You'll dump said girlfriend and seek a new fix for your loneliness, a puppy. If, if your need is happiness and drugs and partying are seen as the fix, but after a period of time, neither of these things are, are yielding the desired result, logically, you'll change the drug, you'll change the scene, why? In order to gin up that sense of pleasure and happiness you desperately wanted in the first place. Needs always drive to a perceived fix, desiring a specific result. And if the result doesn't meet the need, it's only natural you move on from the fix. This need fix results framework is especially relevant when it comes to Jesus. And why? One of the grand lessons of this particular sermon is that it's critical, friend, that you come to Jesus seeking him as the fix for the correct need. If you don't, it's likely you won't be pleased with the results and you too will bail on Jesus like many of the disciples because he offended you. Think about the the multitude that were present that day in Capernaum, in the synagogue. If let's say the oppression of Rome is what brought you to Jesus hoping he'd be your king. The fact he refuses to lead a revolution would have left you upset and looking for a new fix. If you came that morning hoping that Jesus would free you from the the tax burden of Rome, the fact that Jesus failed to speak to that social issue would have also left you upset. Like you would have been further disillusioned when Jesus would later address that specific topic and say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. As a Jew, that would have blown your mind. Again, Jesus is dodging the distraction of lesser needs so that he could address the larger one. If that day you came to the synagogue and you desired an experience, man, you wanted to be fed or wowed by a miracle. The fact that Jesus only taught an offensive sermon performed no miracle, 
it would have left you disappointed. Once more, if you wanted to feel good about yourself that morning, you came to church to feel good. Jesus' sermon, one that emphasized the importance of his death to atone for your sin, wouldn't have really sufficed. You know, ultimately, many left Jesus that morning because they had come hoping Jesus would fix the wrong need. Consider why of all the groups present that day, it was the 12 who refused to bail. Sure, they were left disappointed that Jesus didn't start a revolution. They would have liked, I'm sure, to have seen a miracle or two. No doubt, talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood didn't sit well. And yet, these men, unlike the others, they don't bail on Jesus. Why? For one reason. They correctly understood their most pressing need was salvation. And since Jesus promised everlasting life as an effective Savior, they realized that he still was the most logical fix. Again, Peter's response to why they weren't leaving, look again, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You only say that when you understand that he's the only fix to the need, he's the only remedy. You have the words of eternal life. Understand, the reason many of his disciples left, and ultimately why people get so offended by Jesus today, is that they come to realize one of two things. Either Jesus isn't the fix to their need, or they're not cool with what Jesus says is their real need. In the end, there are two inescapable realities about Jesus. Inescapable realities about his message that the crowd learned that morning. First, Jesus' message was offensive. Please note that. What Jesus is saying to this group in this room on this morning was offensive to them. Secondly, they also learned that Jesus would, would rather risk a following than downplay the truth of the gospel. I'll say that. Two realities you should take away from this sermon. One, Jesus' message was offensive and he didn't care. Let me tell you a secret that most modern churches hide. <laughs> the gospel is deeply offensive. I'll say it again. You won't hear it in a lot of churches. But the, the gospel is fundamentally offensive. Like not only will Jesus refuse to be complicit in fixing needs that don't really matter, but Jesus is clear what your needs really are. You know, the Bible, when you read through the scriptures, the Bible refuses to tiptoe around uncomfortable realities, uncomfortable realities about your sin, that apart from Jesus, you, my friend, are broken, and that it's this brokenness that alienates you from God. Sure, there is no question that Jesus loves you, but the gospel declares that God does not love who you are in sin. Now, whether or not you want to hear this, the truth is that you, my friend, are not as God created you to be because of sin. Your desires and your proclivities are skewed 
as a consequence of sin, your identity, your pursuits are warped. You, apart from Jesus, are a train wreck. You're a mess. You know, the very idea of the fall following creation means that you and I aren't naturally the way that God intended us to be. And if you can't admit that you're fallen, I ask, how can Jesus ever pick you up? The truth is nothing in this life is the way that God created or designed it to be, including you. And yet the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, boldly states that if you're willing to admit that need, I'm broken. Jesus is not content to leave you that way. He is your fix. When someone says of themselves, you hear this a lot in today's culture, Jesus loves me just the way that I am. If you hear someone say that, you know they are at best self-deceived. When you hear a pastor make such a statement, you should know that, that their words ooze from below and are not coming from above. Jesus loves you. That is true. But he does, not the, he does not love the way that you are and sin. And let's be honest. In today's world, as with the ancient world, such a statement is offensive, isn't it? Telling someone who they are and what they're doing is not okay. Or, or even saying that, that who they are and what they're doing is not lovable, assaults their sensibilities. And yet, the inability to admit your core need, the problem with it is that it only neuters the power, the fundamental power of what the gospel says. Friend, if you can't admit that your real need is salvation and transformation, what good is Jesus to you as a savior? If you're struggling with that central concept of the gospel, let me challenge you with just a very simple question. Think about it. If Jesus really does love you just the way that you are, then why would he have died specifically to transform you into someone you aren't? I'll just repeat it. I'd love an answer if you disagree. If Jesus really does love you the way that you are, then why would he have died specifically to transform you into someone you aren't? Again, in the end, it doesn't take a theology degree to understand that the offensive nature of the true gospel, that message, it flies in the face of not just our world, but the most popular church model in America. It's known as the seeker-friendly movement or in a more modern twist, the attractional church model. Sadly, there are many churches, too many, I would say today, that intentionally minimize the full truth of the gospel, specifically to make the church service more comfortable for the unbeliever to attend. Unlike Jesus this morning in Capernaum, they would rather temper down the truth in order to maintain a larger crowd. Jesus did the opposite. What's interesting is that to accomplish this goal of softening the message in order to keep Jesus from being offensive, pastors will either refuse to articulate what a person's true need is 
by never discussing sin or brokenness or the essential need of transformation. Or this is what they do. They'll present Jesus, they'll preach Jesus as a fix for lesser needs. Jesus, friends, wants to lead you into financial freedom. Okay, and that, that's a good thing. I, mean, I would like some financial freedom, but is that really my big need? Well, it doesn't offend me. I can get some 12 steps to bump my 401k. I like that. But they emphasize a lesser need. That Jesus wants to make you wealthy. Or he wants to give you influence. Learn how to be a better leader from Jesus. Or how about this? Jesus will give you a life of purpose. Well, why do I need a life of purpose if I'm going to hell? I got a bigger need, bro. A more pressing one. You know, since the gospel by its nature offends, it's only logical that there are churches that they'll intentionally teach mile-wide, inch-deep topical messages that they can pick a verse here or a verse there in, in order to present a safe environment. They can avoid uncomfortable truths. This whole thing has become so extreme that according to Andy Stanley, in order to reach the lost, we must now even uncouple Christianity from the Old Testament. My problem is that Jesus taught from the Old Testament. So if that Bible was good enough for him, why shouldn't it be good enough for me? And maybe there's some things in there I need to hear. I want you to consider. What exactly does this seeker-friendly, attractional church, what does, it, what does it really accomplish? Like in the end, what does it yield? I mean, the fact is that these church models justify their approach by boasting huge conversion rates. I mean, they have crowds. And they'll argue that the ends justify the means, that people are getting saved. And that's really all that matters. Really. Like taking Jesus' example in John 9 to heart, there seems to be one question that no one is bold enough to ask. I'll step up. If you aren't presenting a gospel message that is offensive, are you really presenting the gospel? And if that's the case, what are all these people actually converting to if they aren't hearing the real gospel message? I could one argue, hypothetically, that many churches, yes, they have large conversion rates, but they're really churning out false converts. People who, yes, they accept Jesus, but they accept him as a friend, a moral example, a teacher, a spiritual guru, but they never really accept him as a savior for sin because their sin was never presented as their real need. Their real need was never discussed. It was never proposed. I know that's a provocative and, and even kind of difficult thought, but I actually think it's provable. Have you ever noticed that churches that boast huge numbers of conversions still fail to teach the Bible? Interesting. Why do you do that? Well, these church leaders know that if they ever did present the truth of the gospel, many of their so-called converts would be offended. And what would happen? They would leave the church. This is the case. Again, I ask, what have they actually converted to? Uh, let me apply this concept as simply as I possibly can. 
If you are never offended by a message you hear at church, it's likely that you aren't being given the truth of the gospel. Once more, if your church never presents an offensive gospel message, why are you attending? Let me close. Aside from the fact that failing to articulate the real need of fallen man over as opposed to overemphasizing lesser needs, never really affords a person the opportunity to find Jesus as the ultimate fix for a very real need, sin. There is a deeper problem with the whole approach. You know, by design, the offensive nature of the gospel message isn't friendly to the seeker. Nor has God intended it to be attractive to the unbeliever. Within this bread of life discourse, Jesus has been more than clear that it's solely the job of the Father to do what? To draw whom? The sinner. Look again, very quickly. John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father has given gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Verse 39, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The idea that it's even important for a church ministry to make Jesus more palatable for the masses or seeker-friendly to the world or attractive to sinners. The reason I'm offended by the strategy and the method is that it denies the sovereignty of God and the process of drawing. And it minimizes the power of Jesus' calling upon the lost to come. The truth is, is that God doesn't need our help drawing sinners any more than he needs our help saving sinners. God doesn't need a church to temper the nature of the gospel, to be more marketable, to be less offensive. The Father draws, church proclaims the truth, Jesus saves, period. By design, when an unbeliever comes to church, a church that's committed to presenting the real gospel message through the faithful teaching of God's word. This is what will always happen. One of two things, always. Either the person repents, comes to Jesus, accepts him as a savior for sin, evidence that the father drew them in the first place, or that person bails on Jesus because the message of the gospel offended them, and they were never really willing to be honest with the true essence of their real need to be saved. Evidence the Father was never drawing them in the first place. Again, this dynamic whereby people end up offended by the truth of the gospel message and ultimately walk away from him. Jesus says in John 6, verse 65, he says, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So what's the point of the message? Let's ask ourselves, as a church, what's more important? Really, what is more important? What should the fundamental core component of the DNA of this place be? Calvary 316. Should it be being a crowded church filled with people who never hear the offending truth? Or... Should our, focus on, should our focus rather be on being a church of whatever size God determines, filled with people being transformed by the offending truth?
know, of the first church in Jerusalem, we read in Acts 2, verse 47, we're told that it was the Lord who added to the church daily. Who? Those who are being saved. Again, this notion that church is for the unchurched isn't biblical. Here's the novel idea, that church is for Christians. Shocker. That church should be a place that Christians go to be equipped to go into the world with the gospel. You'll hear this phrase a lot within Christian circles, even within those that I, that I admire and, and come from. The church is supposed to be a hospital for the sick. You heard that, right? Baloney. No. The church is supposed to be a medical training ground whereby we send doctors into the, a sick world that needs help. Does ministry happen here or does it happen there? Was the, the commission for evangelism given to the individuals or to the church institution? It was given to individuals. The, great, the church, did, it was 10 days after the fact that the church was even instituted when Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples to go into the world. The church is to be a sending organization, an equipping organization, a place where Christians come to be equipped to go out and minister. In this synagogue that morning in Capernaum, Jesus teaches us. And I think it's okay that he would rather risk a following than ever placate the truth of what the gospel has to say. That's what this church is about. As long as I'm behind this pulpit, that's what this church will always be about. And it might not be popular, and we might be offensive, and it might not even draw a big crowd. But we want to be a place where someone that comes in can hear the truth. In love. Filled with grace. That's what this place wants to be. So Father Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.